This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 123rd edition of the program. Today is December 14th, and on today's episode, I'm going to attempt something that I've never attempted before on this podcast. I'm going to try to get through the episode with zero caffeine. No caffeine whatsoever, and it's not necessarily because I want to quit um, drinking coffee. It's because... I'm not feeling too good, so I don't necessarily think that caffeine or anything would really bode well with my stomach. So, um, I don't know how it's going to go. This might be the worst episode in Humanist Report history, but let's roll with it. And <laughs> let's see if I could still pull off the show with no caffeine. <laughs> so, of course, before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal signups that we had this last week. This week we had Bruce Griswold, Dale Perrin, Daniel Forrest Jacobson, Daniel Hogan, Douglas Whitmore, Eric Zahn, Jeff Jonelli, Kathleen, Lee Lennox, Miles Johnson, Olga Osborne, Sophie C., Stephen Byrne, and Winkle the Bernie Bro. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, when it comes to net neutrality, we'll start there and talk about how Ajit Pai finally admitted that repealing net neutrality actually does pose a risk to consumers. And we'll also talk about a closed event where Ajit Pai joked about being a Verizon puppet. And when it comes to people defending net neutrality, the good guys, we'll talk about how internet pioneers are calling on Congress to stop Ajit Pai. And also, FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel accused her own agency of withholding evidence of fraud. So we'll talk about that. And additionally, one congressman is actually proposing legislation that would save net neutrality. So of course, we're going to touch on that. Also on this episode, we'll talk about the reforms proposed by the DNC Unity Commission. We'll discuss a lesser known fact about the Republican tax plan. And we'll also talk about a prediction that Bernie Sanders made a couple of weeks ago and how it's already coming true. And finally, in this episode, we will talk about the result of the Alabama Senate race between Roy Moore and Doug Jones. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's show. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. So it's pretty obvious that FCC Chairman Ajit Pai disagrees with the principle of net neutrality because his former employer, Verizon, disagrees with the principle of net neutrality. And they hate net neutrality so much that they spend millions of dollars every single year lobbying Congress against net neutrality. And they also spend the most amount of time lobbying against net neutrality, according to the Sunlight Foundation. Now, one might question why Ajit Pai would still be doing everything in his power to oppose net neutrality at the behest of a company he no longer works for. But the answer to that is pretty simple. Once he leaves his job at the FCC and gives Verizon, along with other internet service providers, exactly what they've been wanting for years now, 
they'll most likely hire him right back. And you can guarantee his salary will be higher than ever and will likely get a nice hiring bonus as well since his decision to unilaterally kill net neutrality will net these companies trillions of dollars in profit. And we know that he's still close with his former employer because just last week he gave the keynote speech at Verizon's headquarters in Washington, D.C. So, I mean, this is obviously a conflict of interest and at this point he's just brazenly shilling for Verizon out in the open and he doesn't even care about the optics. But Ajit Pai is not ignorant to the criticism he's receiving. In fact, he's very cognizant of the criticism he's received from people like me, and I mean that literally, because at this year's Federal Communications Bar Association, he actually took the time to joke about just how big of a shill he is for Verizon. Now, this is an event stacked with FCC employees, telecom bigwigs, industry insiders. Some actually call it the telecom prom, and that's an appropriate name for it because it's where all of the insiders and uh, regulators get together and it's just one big circle jerk. Now, to demonstrate the types of critiques him and his colleagues have received since they've decided to attack net neutrality, Ajit Pai played a clip from one of his biggest critics and that critic just so happened to be me i'm not kidding so <laughs> this is how the crowd reacted when they saw me call ajit pai and one of his colleagues industry shills many people perhaps some of you are still wondering why was brendan selected to be a commissioner and the answer is actually pretty simple check it out this individual is a complete show for the industry, and in fact, he may be more pro-corporate than even a Jeep buy. It looks like the crowd really liked my joke, except I wasn't joking. When I called you and Brendan Carr industry shills, I meant it. I base that name on facts, on your history of shilling for the industry and the fact that you came from the industry. So I wasn't just calling them industry shills to be malicious. I called them shills based on the fact that they're shills. And I'm also really glad to know that Ajit Pai watches the Humanist Report. So now that I have your attention, Ajit, allow me to speak to you directly here for a second. You are an evil, robotic, megalomaniacal, limp-dicked prick, and on behalf of all of my fellow Americans, go fuck yourself. We hate you, you evil bastard. How was that insult, Ajit? <laughs> but now that I've got that out of the way, uh, I want to show you just how morally bankrupt the attendees were at this dinner. Because when the issue of Title II net neutrality came up, specifically when Ajit Pai talked about repealing Title II net neutrality, they literally cheered. Next week, we will vote to overturn his Title II rules. And... <laughs> yeah! Ruin the internet so we can make more money, Ajit! We love you! I mean, these people are despicable. They don't care at all about how their actions harm the American people. All they care about is fattening their wallets, and it's sickening to me. Now, another thing that we learned was that Ajit Pai is fully aware of the 22 million comments submitted to the FCC where we told them to not repeal net neutrality, but apparently those comments, you know, that was all just a big joke to Ajit Pai as well. This being my first uh, chairman's dinner, I thought I could use a little help, so I decided to crowdsource the writing process, and 
ask people to submit jokes. I received 22 million <laughs> submissions. <laughs> 7.5 million of them were knock-knock jokes from fakejokegenerator.com. <laughs> Now, I don't know if you noticed in that clip, but he actually brought up fake comments, which is an issue that the FCC has refused to address. So that's also a big joke to him as well. Using people's identities to file false complaints against net neutrality. That's a joke to him. He thinks it's funny. Thank you to tonight's main sponsor, Sinclair Broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people ask me, well, what keeps you up at night? And that's actually pretty easy. The thought of the FCC having to resolve a retransmission dispute between Verizon and Sinclair. <laughs> I mean, how do you choose between your longtime love and your newfound crush? <laughs> uh, many people are still shell shocked that I'm here tonight, and uh, they ask themselves, how on earth did this happen? Well, uh, moments before tonight's dinner, somebody leaked a 14-year-old video that helps answer that question, and in all candor, I can no longer hide from the truth, and so I might as well have known it. Uh, let's take a look. The woman in the video was Kathy Griot, who is literally Verizon's senior vice president and deputy general counsel. Now, he was presumably joking about being a Verizon shill to suggest that the thought that he was shilling for Verizon or that he was a puppet for them is so preposterous that it's funny. But as he's using satire and irony, or trying to at least, to downplay the idea that he's a Verizon puppet by joking about it, he ended up proving just how big of a puppet he really is by featuring a 
fucking executive from Verizon in his skit. So where's the punchline? Because I don't find that joke very funny since it's true. So it's not a funny joke if you're just stating what's actually true, albeit in a more exaggerated manner. Now, in response to them literally laughing about corruption and how Ajit Pai being the FCC chairman poses a conflict of interest, well, this is what Verizon had to say about this event. We never knew Kathy was so funny. I really have nothing more to say about it. Now, this is what Verizon's chief communications officer had to say. Now, Gizmodo's Dell Cameron reports that Verizon refused to say whether or not they actually helped Ajit Pai write the, quote, joke that we just saw, which means they probably did. But Cameron did put it perfectly by summing up this event. America isn't laughing, even if Verizon can't help itself. Now, understand that this video was never meant to be seen by the public. They didn't want these jokes to get out. But we did see it, and Ajit Pai and all of these industry insiders should be absolutely ashamed of themselves because they're laughing about the fact that their puppet is doing something that will harm 300 plus million Americans, and it's sickening. It's not funny. We're not laughing. We don't laugh at things that hurt people. That's not what jokes are about. If your joke requires you to punch down at people that are less powerful than you, then that's not a joke. You're just being a dick. So, I mean, this really shouldn't surprise anyone. I mean, we already know that Ajit Pai is a scumbag, pathetic excuse for a human being. But, I mean, to show the extent to which he doesn't care and thinks it's funny, the way in which he's fucking us over, it's, it's honestly nauseating. We'll soon be entering a dangerous and dystopian era of the internet if Congress or the courts don't intervene to save net neutrality. And the individual who is unilaterally spearheading the effort to kill net neutrality is fully aware of all of the consequences that would come to fruition if net neutrality were gone. Yet, he doesn't necessarily care, and he's so disingenuous... He's literally pretending as if net neutrality as a term itself is amorphous and bereft of any real meaning. This is how he describes net neutrality. You're making some changes and it's causing a bit of controversy. So I hear. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit of upset. Um, for those who don't know what net neutrality is, if I were to define it based on what your critics say, it would be something like this. Freedom on the internet is now in jeopardy because we're handing over control of the internet to a very few, very large corporations. You know, people can see what, what the companies want them to see and can't see what the companies don't want them to see. Is that a fair assessment, you think? I don't think it is for a couple of different reasons. Uh, number one, previous to 2015, we had a free and open internet and we didn't see uh, that type of conduct happening. Secondly, the concept itself is so amorphous. I mean, it's essentially changed over the years into essentially whatever people want to read into it. And that's why I think you see some of these hyperbolic reactions. Well, there you have it. Net neutrality can mean whatever someone wants it to mean, which is why there's so much dangerous hyperbole coming from both sides, because people are just making up what they think net neutrality means. Actually, net neutrality does have meaning. It's not an amorphous term. And it's also not hyperbolic to warn people about scenarios where internet service providers, for example, could sell consumers internet packages like television packages if you're literally giving them the power to do just that. If their number one goal is to make money and increase shareholder value, then it's not hyperbolic to discuss the ways in which they'll capitalize 
on the death of net neutrality and do just that. And if Ajit Pai actually managed to do a quick 10 second Google search, he'd actually find that net neutrality does have a definition that is widely agreed upon. It states here, net neutrality is the principle that internet service providers must treat all data on the internet the same and not discriminate or charge differently by user, content, website, platform, application, etc. So it's only an amorphous term to people who are ignorant, but we all know that Ajit Pai is not ignorant. In fact, he's a very intelligent individual. He's being intentionally obtuse and he's trying to purposefully mislead the American people and muddy the waters to make it seem as though net neutrality isn't as big of a deal as we're all making it out to be, but we all know that that's not true. Now, he's also operating on this assumption, and he's done this since he's railed against net neutrality from the beginning, that internet service providers who are greedy, who are some of the most hated companies in the country, they're going to act in good faith once net neutrality is dead and gone. They're not going to do everything they possibly can to rip off consumers and make more money off of us. This is what he said. Previous to 2015, we had a free and open internet, but we didn't see that type of conduct happening. Well, we've always had a free and open internet. And the reason why we didn't see that type of conduct on a broader level was because we've always had some version of net neutrality. It wasn't Title II before. Title II is new, but we did have net neutrality previously. But even with net neutrality in place, internet service providers have pushed the boundaries of that law and arguably crossed the line in some instances. In fact, just this year, Verizon admitted that it was throttling videos and surprise, surprise, just months later, offered to stop throttling videos if customers paid an extra $10 per month fee. And they've also tried to dissuade users from using video streaming services of their competitors like Netflix by exempting their own video streaming service from data caps. So that arguably already violates net neutrality, but they're trying to do this. They're pushing the line with net neutrality still in place. But if you get rid of net neutrality, what do you think is going to happen, Ajit? And that's not all, because in recent years, Verizon actually blocked tethering applications that appeared in the Google App Store because, of course, these applications allowed customers to circumvent the $20 tethering fee that Verizon charged to customers. And it's not just Verizon, AT&T also forced Apple to block iPhone users from using Skype because obviously Skype is a competitor. And in 2012, AT&T tried to disable FaceTime video calls for customers unless they subscribe to a more expensive internet plan. And it's not just AT&T and Verizon. In 2005, Comcast actually blocked peer-to-peer -peer file sharing services like BitTorrent. And of course, in 2014, once Verizon successfully argued in court to have the previous net neutrality rules struck down, Comcast immediately began throttling Netflix, as did Verizon. And of course, Netflix is a competitor to both Comcast and Verizon. And at least when it comes to Comcast, once Netflix paid them a fee... Well, then all of a sudden, Netflix was faster than ever. So even with net neutrality in place, we still see this type of anti-competitive, anti-consumer conduct from internet service providers. But yet, Ajit Pai pretends as if it's not actually happening. But Ajit Pai is fully aware of everything that's been going on because he's been on the FCC since 2012. He probably has access to consumer complaints filed after these companies violated net neutrality. But he just likes to play dumb and pretend like these things haven't happened and won't happen because it suits the interests of his former employer, Verizon. But in this next clip, he's finally going to make an admission about net neutrality that I think is really telling. He's going to admit here that there is a risk to repealing net neutrality. Netflix. Mm -hmm. do, do you watch Netflix? I do. Okay. 
I assume they oppose the rollback of net neutrality regulations. Correct, yeah. Why? Well, I think they argue that uh, they don't want to have internet service providers uh, potentially threatening uh, the, their ability to have their customers stream content. Are they just making this up? I mean, it, it, it just strikes me that so many of these people are so upset about it, and the, the volume and the vitriol is so strong that it can't just be for nothing, can it? Volume and vitriol are not substitutes for actual arguments. And if you look at the facts in the record with good faith, I think that people will recognize that these kinds of hyperbolic fears never materialized prior to 2015. But, I will say, there's a but. Going forward, we recognize that there is a risk here. We don't simply say, hands off, we're out of the business of regulating, period. So there you have it. When you actually force Ajit Pai to go off script, he finally, reluctantly, and inadvertently admits Quote, there is a risk here. Interesting, because all this time you've been telling us that we're being hyperbolic. In this same interview, you said that the hyperbole was reaching dangerous levels, but yet you're actually admitting that there is a risk to repealing net neutrality. Now, first of all, he also said here that these types of hyperbolic fears was, I think, the term he used. They never materialized. But I just showed you how throttling and blocking has always been an issue. It's been an ongoing issue all these years. But he's saying here that we shouldn't be worried too much because the government isn't going to completely get out of the business of regulating the internet. Now, this is what I think he means by that. He's saying that even if the FCC itself won't be enforcing net neutrality, well, the FTC will still be able to do that. And he recently announced a partnership with the FTC so that way they can quote police the internet. Now it's funny that the biggest argument conservatives use against net neutrality is the fact that the government shouldn't be getting involved in regulating the internet but here he is admitting that he's going to be policing the internet but even if it were the case that the FCC could successfully police the internet and stop companies from violating net neutrality the problem is that he's fully repealing title 2 net neutrality protections which means that the FCC is completely stepping off here so they can't do anything they can't police the internet like they want to they're stripping this entire agency of that power and second of all the FTC is completely and utterly incapable of enforcing net neutrality, which is why he is giving them the authority to do this. It's a way of saying that they're doing something while not actually doing anything to enforce net neutrality. And notice how on one hand, he says anti-competitive and anti-consumer conduct hasn't happened and won't happen, but yet he's still admitting that there's a risk in repealing net neutrality and teamed up with the FTC to supposedly police the internet. But all this time, he's been telling us that the internet doesn't need to be policed. So which is it? I mean, he keeps changing his story. He can't keep his story straight. And I've said this before, if you continuously lie and lie and lie and lie, well, it's really easy to contradict yourself because if you just stick to the truth, then you'll say the same thing every time. But if you lie, then there is that risk that you're going to end up exposing your own lies and hypocrisy. And that's exactly what Ajit Pai did. So he is basically telling us that by allowing the FTC and the FCC to get rid of net neutrality, but instead police uh, the internet. What he's basically saying is that if a company brazenly violates net neutrality, they're going to wag their finger at them and tell them don't do that. But do you want to know what that company in turn will do? They'll say, fuck off. 
we'll go ahead and pay that fine and we'll continue violating net neutrality because that fine isn't going to be nearly as much as the profit we'll be raking in. That's what this is about. So Ajit Pai is screwing over 300 plus million Americans in this country for no good reason and he's lying to them. But if you ask him, it's not the American people who are the ones he's hurting, he's the real victim. Twitter discourse has given way to more serious threats. Has it all been worth it in the sense that this has really affected your life? It's not been easy. I've been advised uh, by law enforcement not to disclose too many details about what's going on, but I think what has been publicly reported is that there have been threats against me and my wife and my kids, including in our neighborhood, and uh, it's not pleasant. The racist insults. Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, people on both sides, some people say, uh, you know, go back to India or wherever it is you came from. I get those regularly. It's Kansas. But, uh, <laughs> I know, that's, where right. you, that's where you're from. But it's on both sides. People saying, you know, yeah, he's not a real Indian American. Uh, the Indian community disavows him. You know, he's just a, a sellout and that sort of stuff. And look, to me, as I said, I understand that public policy is always fraught with passion. My perhaps naive hope is that we still reclaim some part of the public square where people can disagree agreeably. If you look at the online discourse, it's it's obviously less focused on the facts and more focused on you know, how many zings can I get in and 280 characters. Do you worry that the president is not leading by example on this? I mean, I don't make any comments about the president's Twitter feed or whatever. That's for other people to decide. He does all the things you just described. <laughs> That's uh, some people can have that argument, and I, I'm focused on again this proceeding, and generally speaking, uh, trying to conduct ourselves based on the facts and the law. So, if you notice during that clip, all that they could provide us with is evidence that he's being harassed and threatened. Were the same two signs that probably one person left a couple of weeks ago outside of his house. That's the evidence. And notice that mean comments on the internet, which are the outliers, mind you, are what he's actually equating to harassment. But if you actually look at the tweets to him, most of them are not racist and they're not threatening either. In fact, I pulled up a random tweet from Ajit Pai that wasn't a retweet and I looked through some of the replies and all of them were respectful, 100% of these replies were respectful. I didn't see any that were racist. I didn't see any of them where they threatened Ajit Pai or his family. And of course, this might just be a small sample size, but he's using the few racist or threatening tweets that he received to imply that those are representative of the majority of criticism he's received. But I mean, it's obviously not true. You could debunk that by looking at the replies to his tweets. Most of these replies here tell him to not repeal net neutrality or they are thoughtful comments responding to his decision to repeal net neutrality and calling him out on his lies and corruption. But the fact that most of the tweets to Ajit Pai are actually civilized, that shouldn't surprise anyone. The fact that he's lying, <laughs> it's not a shocker. Ajit Pai is a pathological liar. You could usually tell that he's lying if his mouth is open. So everything he's said about net neutrality was pretty much contra contradicted in this video where he admitted that repealing it would pose a risk. And now all of a sudden he's trying to, quote, compromise with us by telling us, you know, you don't have to worry too much about net neutrality being dead because we're still going to police the internet. 
Well, that's not good enough. If you really did see a risk in repealing net neutrality and thought there were was a need, a legitimate need to police the internet, then you wouldn't just repeal net neutrality in the first place. But we all know repealing net neutrality, repealing Title II protections specifically, means that the internet will no longer be free and open. And you have yourself to thank for that, Ajit Pai, because you will go down in history as the man that single-handedly spearheaded the effort to kill net neutrality. So when proponents of net neutrality talk about the consequences that will inevitably come to fruition upon its death, this is how FCC Chairman Ajit Pai describes our warnings. Hyperbolic reactions. Hyperbolic reactions. So presumably what Ajit Pai is implying here is that we're being hyperbolic because we don't fully understand what a repeal of net neutrality would entail. However, unfortunately for Ajit Pai, people that understand the internet the most decided to speak out. And can you guess whose side they took? They took our side. So 20 internet moguls and internet pioneers, people who literally invented the internet, actually penned an open letter to some of the most important politicians in the House and the Senate that serve in committees that actually oversee the internet and technology. And this letter is titled, Internet Pioneers and Leaders Tell the FCC You Don't Understand How the Internet Works. Internet creators and leading figures ask the FCC to cancel its vote repealing net neutrality protections. Now, before I read you the letter, I actually want to tell you who signed this letter because these people are incredibly important. So among these individuals includes Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, Vinton G. Cerf, the father of the internet, Whitfield Diffie, who is the inventor of public key cryptography, Brewster Kale, one of the internet's founders, Susan Lando, a cybersecurity expert, Theodore Holm Nelson, one of the pioneers of hypertext, Jennifer Rexford, the chair of computer science at Princeton University, we have Ronald L. Rivest, who co-invented RSA, and Steve Wozniak, the founder of Apple, among other people. And let me remind you that the internet wouldn't exist had it not been for these people and their brilliance. So this is the letter that they sent to these members of Congress and what they say is more important than anyone else because there's nobody that understands the internet more than these people. So their letter states, we are the pioneers and technologists who created and now operate the internet and some of the innovators and business people who like many others depend on it for our livelihood. We are writing to respectfully urge you to call on FCC Chairman Ajit Pai to cancel the December 14th vote on the FCC's proposed Restoring Internet Freedom Order. This proposed order would repeal key network neutrality protections that prevent internet access providers from blocking content, websites, and applications, slowing or speeding up services or classes of service, and charging online services for access or fast lanes to internet access providers' customers. The proposed order would also repeal oversight over other unreasonable discrimination and unreasonable practices and over interconnection with last mile internet access providers. The proposed order removes long-standing FCC oversight over internet access 
access providers without an adequate replacement to protect consumers, free markets, and online innovation. It is important to understand that the FCC's proposed order is based on a flawed and factually inaccurate understanding of internet technology. These flaws and inaccuracies were documented in detail in a 43-page-long joint comment signed by over 200 of the most prominent internet pioneers and engineers and submitted to the FCC on July 17th of 2017. Despite this comment, the FCC did not correct its misunderstandings but instead premised the proposed order on the very technical flaws the comment explained. The technically incorrect proposed order dismantles 15 years of targeted oversight from both Republican and Democratic FCC chairs who understood the threats that internet access providers could pose to open markets on the internet. The expert's comment was not the only one the FCC ignored. Over 23 million comments have been submitted by a public that is clearly passionate about protecting the internet. The FCC could not possibly have considered these adequately. Indeed, breaking with established practice, the FCC has not held a single open public meeting to hear from citizens and experts about their proposed order. Furthermore, the FCC's online comment system has been plagued by major problems that the FCC has not had time to investigate. These include bot-generated comments that impersonated Americans, including dead people, and an unexplained outage of the FCC's online comment system that occurred at the very moment TV host John Oliver was encouraging Americans to submit comments to the system. Compounding our concern, the FCC has failed to respond to the Freedom of Information Act requests about these incidents and failed to provide information to a New York State Attorney General's investigation of them. We therefore call on you to urge FCC Chairman Pai to cancel the FCC's vote. The FCC's rushed and technically incorrect proposed order to abolish net neutrality protections without any replacement is an imminent threat to the internet we worked so hard to create. It should be stopped. So that right there should tell you everything you need to know about net neutrality. If the FCC doesn't want to listen to normal Americans like myself, if they don't want to listen to internet companies, the hundreds of which that have called on them to not go through with this repeal of net neutrality, if they don't want to listen to tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, then they should listen to these people because they created the internet. But... Do I think this will have <laughs> um, any influence on the FCC's decision to kill net neutrality? Of course not. So this is going to have absolutely no impact whatsoever when really it's outrageous that it's not going to have an impact because these are people who came together to create the World Wide Web and they are instrumental in different technologies on the internet because of their brilliance and uh, they're being ignored as well. This isn't about, you know, innovation. This isn't about, you know, technology. This is all about increasing the wallets of Verizon's executives. And Ajit Pai wants a piece of that pie as soon as he goes back to work for Verizon when he leaves the FCC. That's exactly what this is about. So I'm incredibly thankful to all of these individuals that decided to call on Congress to stop Ajit Pai, but unfortunately, I don't think that, you know, this letter is going to have any impact on the FCC's decision.
Jessica Rosenworcel, who is one of the two sane commissioners on the FCC, who spoke out against Ajit Pai's plan before and called on Americans to stop the FCC from killing net neutrality, is now coming forward and accusing her own agency of withholding evidence of fraud. To put it simply, there is evidence in the FCC's files that fraud has occurred, and the FCC is telling law enforcement and victims of identity theft that it is not going to help, Rosenworcel said in a statement to Gizmodo. Moreover, the FCC refuses to look into how nearly half a million comments came from Russian sources. Failure to investigate this corrupted record undermines our process for seeking public input in the digital age. Rosenworcel's heated comments come in response to a clash between the Federal Communications Commission and New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman over his office's investigation into fraudulent comments submitted to the FCC regarding agency chairman Ajit Pai's plan to dismantle federal net neutrality rules. On Thursday, Thomas Johnson, the FCC's general counsel, sent a letter to Schneiderman in it, he writes that the FCC has no intention of complying with requests for information that Schneiderman contends is critical to uncovering who sent the fake comments, which may have used the names and addresses of millions of American citizens without their consent. At a joint press conference on Monday, where Rosenworcel also spoke, Schneiderman said the identities of as many as 50,000 New Yorkers may have been used without their permission in an effort to influence the outcome of Chairman Pai's proposal to roll back net neutrality rules. So understand that this accusation that the FCC and Ajit Pai specifically is withholding evidence of fraud, that's a huge allegation. So in basically coming forward saying that they have ev evidence of fraud that they're sitting on, Jessica Rosenworcel is outing her own colleagues. But the New York Attorney General's office took this a step further and actually suggested that Ajit Pai may actually be guilty of obstructing justice. So, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's press secretary, Amy Spitalnik, states, It's easy for the FCC to claim that there's no problem with the process when they're hiding the very information that would allow us to determine if there was a problem, she said. To be clear, impersonation is a violation of New York law. Thousands of people have already reported to us that their identities were stolen and used without their consent to submit comments to the FCC. The only privacy jeopardized by the FCC's continued obstruction of this investigation is that of the perpetrators who impersonated real Americans. Added Spitalnik, everyone, especially the FCC, should want to get to the bottom of this before deciding vital public policy based on a corrupted process that seemingly involved illegal activity. So these are very serious allegations being lobbed against Ajit Pai and the FCC. Obstructing justice, withholding evidence of fraud. I mean, this not only threatens the validity, well, it certainly threatens the validity of this vote to kill net neutrality, but, I mean, if they find out that Ajit Pai is personally responsible for obstructing justice or withholding evidence of fraud and he's not complying with FOIA requests, he could be personally liable. So, I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to say that we're reaching criminal territory, legally at least, because it's certainly criminal from an ethical perspective, but for Ajit Pai to be facing criminal charges, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but these are very serious accusations, and you would think that the FCC, after hearing this, would be bending over backwards to comply with the New York Attorney General's office, but they're not. And for someone in the agency, one of Ajit Pai's colleagues, Jessica Rosenworcel, to come out and say, 
He's sitting on evidence that you need. This is huge. So this is what needed to happen. We need people to start making noise about what the FCC is doing because the minute there was any hint of fraud being committed and identities being stolen, the FCC should have halted the process, but they didn't do that. Now, look, I've had my own viewers send me emails with screenshots of their identities being used. And those people, the people I've talked to anyways, who watch the show, they support net neutrality and their comment was against net neutrality. So something very shady is going on here. Now, look, understand that Ajit Pai doesn't even care about those 23 million comments anyway. So if 100% of them said that he shouldn't repeal net neutrality, he doesn't give a damn. But this whole process where the FCC takes public input into account and review substantive comments submitted to the FCC, the whole thing was compromised. So how can you possibly think that these rules are legitimate and should stand if the entire process itself was compromised and flawed from the beginning? So this is very serious. And the battle for net neutrality, trust me, it's not over. This is going to now be waged in the courts. And uh, I'm very happy about that because we need to have some type of recourse because our input has been completely ignored. So as you all know, in a 3-2 to two vote, the FCC voted to repeal Title II net neutrality protections. But even though we lost the battle, the war isn't over because now one of two things will most likely happen. Either this will be challenged in the courts or... Congress will step up and get involved to protect net neutrality. Now, one congressman did just that. So, Sean Maloney of New York actually introduced legislation that would, in fact, save net neutrality. Hi, I want to give you a quick update on my effort to save net neutrality. You've been hearing me talk about this recently because it's so important. Right now, the Federal Communications Commission is trying to overturn the way the Internet has always been governed. And they're doing it to help big business restrict your access to the internet or charge you more for the services you love, like Netflix. This is a bad idea. It won't help you. It will only help the big internet service providers and cable companies who want to make more money. I have a new bill. It's called the Save Net Neutrality Act. It's H.R. 4585. And what it does is very simple. It stops the FCC in its tracks and says it cannot use the current rulemaking process to overturn net neutrality. We know the current process has been corrupted by all kinds of fake comments and shenanigans. In fact, it's being investigated right now by Attorney General Eric Schneiderman in New York. We need to save net neutrality. My new legislation, the Save Net Neutrality Act, will do that. I hope you'll join us. Now, Representative Maloney goes into further detail specifically about what this bill would do. So in a statement released by his office, he's quoted as saying the FCC's proposal to screw up your internet is just about the worst plan I've seen. The comment period was a mess and the rest of the proposal is full of holes, said Representative Maloney. My bill would stop this rule from going into effect and keep the internet the way it is, affordable, open, and full of innovation. The Administrative Procedure Act 
requires federal agencies to consider relevant comments as part of the NPRM by establishing a formal comment period and process for considering the opinions of people who would be affected by a new proposed rule. The FCC has come under intense scrutiny for its bungling of the comment process on this proposed rule. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman has uncovered evidence that tens of thousands of New Yorkers may have had their identities used to file fake comments. Additionally, analysis by the Pew Research Center has found that only 3% of the comments received by the FCC definitively went through a verification process to ensure emailed comments came from legitimate accounts. This allowed many comments to be submitted using fake accounts. The analysis provides the example that over 7,500 comments came from the email address example at example.com. The bill refrains from making policy prescriptions, but instead invalidates the process that culminates in the creation of an enforceable rule authorized by the APA. Without the ability to rely on the rule, the FCC would have to start the NPRM process over from scratch. Now, the bill itself is H.R. 4585, and I think that what we all need to do is call our representatives and ask them to co-sponsor this piece of legislation, because if it doesn't gain any momentum, then that's not going to make a difference. The FCC won't be threatened or feel as though they have to respond to it. So I think that it's brilliant the way in which he crafted this legislation as something that's really simple. It just invalidates the process because it has been flawed. So he's using existing rules to make sure that the FCC can't kill net neutrality. Now, of course, I would have obviously preferred a bill that mandates net neutrality or included a constitutional amendment that guarantees net neutrality. But I do think this is a good short-term solution and is a bill that could potentially garner support from some of Representative Maloney's colleagues. Now, we definitely need a constitutional amendment to guarantee net neutrality because so long as it's up to the FCC or even Congress, well, these ISPs are just going to buy off politicians, donate their, to their campaigns in hopes that they'll gut net neutrality. So if we have a constitutional amendment, once and for all, the issue's solved. They can't do shit about it. No matter how much they lobby, no matter how many politicians they buy, once it's in the Constitution... The issue is solved forever. But of course, that is something that is very difficult to accomplish in our current political climate. So on last week's show, I gave you details about the GOP's tax reform plan and how it basically robs the poor in order to pay for tax cuts for the rich. So while our taxes are going up, Taxes for the richest Americans in the country are going down, and there are tax breaks in every which way you can imagine for rich people, including a tax cut for private jet owners. So the bill itself is unethical, it's downright egregious, but we learned a new detail about their tax reform bill that might be more problematic than any other components. So John Sarlin of CNN reports, for the first time in American politics, anonymous dark money political donations could become tax deductible. That's if a provision currently being debated between House and Senate negotiators makes it into the final bill. The issue at hand started with the Johnson Amendment, named after then-Senator Lyndon Johnson's 1954 measure that prohibits non Nonprofit groups who maintain tax-exempt status, including churches and charities, from directly participating in politics. But efforts to repeal the Johnson Amendment have resulted in language that would ease political speech rules for all nonprofits. 
The results, critics say, could effectively let people deduct de facto political donations and further hide those donations and spending from the public. This is taxpayer-subsidized Citizens United, said Ian Van Walker of the Brennan Center for Justice, referring to the 2010 landmark Supreme Court case that loosened campaign finance rules. The House tax bill passed in November included a repeal of the Johnson Amendment, while the Senate did not. Currently, lawmakers are at work reconciling the two bills. So if this is passed, this would encourage rich people to buy politicians because those contributions would be tax deductible. They are not just allowing legalized bribery, they're encouraging it now. Now, why would they want to do this? Well, if you repeal the Johnson Amendment and you allow churches to have a say in politics, who do you think they're going to donate to and lobby for? the Republican Party. So this personally benefits them. That's why they want to do this. Now, let me remind you that in the text of this bill that they're trying to push through Congress, this strips away tax deductions for normal citizens. So if you donate 50 or $100, well, sometimes you would get that back in the form of a tax break at the end of the year when you file for taxes. So they're trying to discourage us from donating to candidates. They don't want grassroots fundraising and they're trying to encourage more dark money, giving rich people tax breaks for donating and uh, buying off politicians. If you already thought the Republican Party was a shill of a party, a shell of a party that is, but they're also shills. If you already thought that they were a shell of a party just there to do the bidding of rich people and you had a bad view of the Republican Party, this should downgrade their status even further. I didn't think they could lower the bar, but they lowered the bar. This party is just unbelievably corrupt. They are shameless. They don't even care. They want to make sure that they look out for their donors so much that their donors get the money back in the form of tax cuts when they donate to them. Now understand that when Republicans receive these donations, and Democrats, when any politician receives campaign contributions from multinational corporations or millionaires and billionaires, they usually are donating because they are expecting a return on that investment. And we're seeing that right now. So when the Koch brothers, for example, or Nike donates to politicians and they pass tax cuts that specifically benefit those groups of people and elites, well, they get that money that they donated back. I mean, it makes the donation that they sent really meaningless. I mean, spending a couple of million dollars to buy off a politician or a couple of politicians is chump change when you compare that to the money they're going to make back uh, when it comes to tax cuts and whatnot. So they're already getting a return on that investment, but now they're going to get tax cuts for buying off politicians. The Republican Party is an absolute fucking disgrace for anyone to still vote for this joke of a party. You should be ashamed of yourself because you are being duped. You are willfully allowing this party to rob you, take money out of your hands to give to their rich donors. So I don't, I don't even know how to respond to this. This is disgusting. We already live in a corrupt country where campaign finance laws basically allow for legalized corruption and bribery out in the open and they're trying to make it worse in a bill that they're trying to pass off as tax legislation it's it's just nauseating they are disgusting 
So if you tuned in to the CNN debate with Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz a couple of weeks ago, Bernie Sanders made a very specific prediction about what would happen if the Republican Party can actually pass this tax reform bill that they're pushing currently. This is what he said specifically. This legislation will grow the deficit by $1.4 trillion. Mark my words, mark my words. The day after or soon after this legislation passes, if it does, we're going to do everything we can to see that it doesn't. These guys are going to come back. They're going to say, oh, my goodness, deficit is soaring. We've got to cut Social Security. We've got to cut Medicare and Medicaid and education and programs that the middle class and working families desperately need. This is a disastrous piece of legislation. We've got to defeat it. Now, in less than one week after their bill passed the Senate, they're already proving Bernie Sanders right. So according to Sophie Tatum of CNN, she reports the House GOP caucus plans to work on entitlement reform next year as a way to tackle the debt and the deficit, according to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Speaking to Ross Kaminsky on his talk radio show, the Wisconsin Republican said Wednesday that the House would be working to reform health care entitlements in 2018, calling them the big drivers of our debt during a discussion about the Republican tax bill. Tax reform grows the economy, Ryan said. So he basically planned in this term three big budget bills, two entitlement reform bills, one economic growth tax reform bill. The first one passed the House, failed the Senate. This one, both tax bills have passed the House and the Senate. We're on track with that, and then next year we're going to have to get back to entitlement reform. Ryan specifically mentioned Medicare as being the biggest entitlement that's got to have reform. Really, what it is, is we need to convert our healthcare system to a patient-centered system so that people have more choices, we have more competition, Ryan later said. So after the Republican Party passes a bill that increases the debt and the deficit, they are attending to the crisis they're creating and solving the problem that they've caused by fucking us over even more. It's bad enough that they're already raising our taxes to pay for tax cuts to the rich. But since they can't raise enough taxes on us to pay for all of the trillions of dollars in tax cuts that they're giving to elites, well, they have to find some other way to dip into the piggy bank, uh, into our piggy bank specifically, and rob us to pay for tax cuts to the rich. And that comes in the form of entitlement reform. So I love, I just love how he talks about the debt and pretends to be concerned when the bill he voted for exacerbates the debt crisis in the country. These are the most brazenly corrupt people in the history of humankind. They don't even care how bad it looks. Republicans are openly trying to screw you over and they don't care at all they don't care about the optics they don't care that we know they hold normal americans in contempt and hate us and just see us as a burden they don't care they only care about appeasing their donors i bet that paul ryan would sell out his own family if it meant appeasing one of his largest donors i i mean it's getting to the point where the republican party is lowering the bar so much that I don't, I honestly don't know what to say. I'm left speechless each time. And this is a party that doesn't surprise me when they do shady things. But they are surprising me. They're getting so brazen about their desire to fuck us over that they're outright just saying in public, yeah, now that we uh, pass tax cuts for the rich and uh, 
and uh, increase the debt. We want to make sure that the poor take care of that for us. Thanks. Bernie Sanders, it didn't even take more than a week for them to prove him right. He told us this would happen. He said they're going to create a debt problem and then the solution is going to be that they cut programs that we depend on like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and Education. It's it's just disgusting. So, I mean, I, I again, I don't, I can't comprehend how Republicans are in office. They are so disgraceful that they should all be impeached because they don't care about the American people. They're there to represent us and they hate us. They hate normal Americans. Unless you're a millionaire, the Republican Party doesn't just not care about you, but they hate you. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, then just look at what they're doing. Their actions dictate what I'm saying. They hate Americans constantly. They're trying to push through bills that strip away health insurance. They're trying to raise our taxes to pay for tax cuts to their largest financial contributors. All they're doing are things that hurt us because those harmful actions benefit their donors. It is disgusting. And I sound like a broken record because all I do when I talk about Republicans lately is come up with adjectives to describe how disgusting and disgraceful they are. But I don't know what else to say. What can you say about a party that is just openly flaunting how much they fucking hate us? They're spitting in our faces after they fuck us over. That's how this party is behaving. So as you all know, the DNC created a Unity Reform Commission where they brought together delegates from Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and the DNC chairman, Tom Perez, in order to draft new rules that would reform the DNC and hopefully unite the party. So they've recently concluded that process and they have recommended a number of reforms that they want the party to incorporate. And this includes changes to caucuses, superdelegates, and transparency. So when it comes to superdelegates, they are substantially reducing the number of superdelegates, but they aren't necessarily going the way of the dodo just yet. So Ada Chavez of The Intercept reports, the Democratic Party's Unity Reform Commission on Saturday voted nearly unanimously on a series of proposals aimed at reforming the presidential nominating process, including one that would eliminate 60% of superdelegates. Cutting the number of superdelegates the commission decided would be a step toward healing wounds from the 2016 primary. Some superdelegates, such as officers of the DNC and elected state chairs, would maintain their status, but their vote at the convention would be bound by the results of the state election. It was not a complete win, however. Others, such as governors or members of Congress, would still be free to vote for whichever candidate they prefer, regardless of their state's preference. So they're relinquishing some control, but not full control. They still want to be able to tip the scales against a Bernie Sanders type of candidate if push comes to shove. Now, why would a unity reform commission comprised of both Bernie and Hillary delegates not just abolish them completely? Well, it's because this unity reform commission was tilted in favor of the establishment. So Bernie got seven delegates, Hillary Clinton got nine, Tom Perez got three. So they would not allow Bernie Sanders delegates to propose abolishing superdelegates altogether. They probably stopped them from doing that. So this is a way of the establishment still clinging to power. Now, is this a step in the right direction? Absolutely. But just go the full way. I mean, it's their way of saying, look, we, we took this big step to win back your trust. But at the same time, they're making sure that they have the ability, if need be, 
to overthrow democracy if we choose a candidate that they don't like. Now, when it comes to reforming caucuses, Ruby Kramer of BuzzFeed News explains how they've adopted a measure to allow absentee ballots in caucuses. Quote, the measure would address perhaps the biggest concerns about the caucus process, which are accessibility and flexibility. If voters can't show up in person to a caucus at the allotted time because of work or family obligations, they cannot participate in the primary. Caucus absentee ballots are already available in Nebraska's Democratic Caucus. Now, additionally, for candidates like Martin O'Malley that failed to meet the 15% viability threshold at the Iowa caucus, for example, well, going forward, the initial vote totals will actually be released. So if Martin O'Malley got, say, 13%, hypothetically, well, he still wouldn't be able to win that caucus or advance, and the people who were caucusing for him would have either had to switch to Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, but he still could argue that since he was so close to viability, that he should be able to stay in the race since he was almost viable. Now, another change to caucuses include same-day voter and party registration for caucuses, which is a huge step in the right direction. Now, another thing that definitely needed to happen was states need to open up their primaries. Now, since the DNC, the National Democratic Party, can't compel them to open up their primaries, what they can do is try to persuade them to do that. So, what they've included is a way to get these states with closed primaries or really suppressive registration tactics like New York that allow that force people to change their party status to Democrat if they want to participate in a primary nearly 200 days before they cast their vote. Well, what they're doing to address that is, quote, the commission proposed the system to penalize states like this by docking their numbers of pledged delegates should they not adjust deadlines. So this is a huge win. I think that all states should have open primaries. For me, I dem-exited. I changed my status to an independent in 2016 once it was revealed to us that Hillary Clinton rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders with the DNC. Now, if I want to participate in future primaries, I'm going to have to re-register as a Democrat, and I don't want to do that. But I will, if it means I can support a progressive candidate in the Democratic Party that I like. But this is a step in the right direction. Now, when it comes to transparency, they're also taking steps to make sure that joint fundraising agreements like the one Clinton signed in 2015 that we learned about through Donna Brazil don't happen again. So the Unity Reform Commission has included language to make any future JFAs available to all campaigns. So they can't just offer it to one campaign. And they're making sure that law firms can't represent the DNC and one candidate's campaign simultaneously. Because Donna Brazil told us about how Perkins Coey LLP was representing the DNC and Clinton's campaign at the same time, which is incredibly unethical because for an organization like the DNC that claims it's neutral. Well, if you have the same legal counsel, then that's a huge conflict of interest. It's unethical. You can't do that. So they are making sure that that doesn't happen. Finally, the commission also voted for a proposal to create an ombudsman council at the DNC, a new body to impartially review and address any complaints or recommend improvements around questions of fairness, neutrality, and transparency at the party. Now, to me, this sounds like a fantastic idea. The only problem <laughs> is that the person who appoints this ombudsman is the DNC chair, who currently is Tom Perez, who probably doesn't care too much about fairness. So, look, this is a mixed bag. There are some reforms that they agreed upon that I think are just fantastic and, you know, they're no-brainers. Now, the problem is that all of these recommendations made by the DNC Unity Reform Commission have to go before the aggregate DNC for a vote. In other words, people who are currently superdelegates 
have to be willing to vote to strip themselves of power if we really want to get rid of superdelegates. So, <laughs> I, you know, people who serve on the Unity Reform Commission are insisting that they are optimistic that the DNC will, in fact, do this. I'm not so optimistic, but I really hope to be proven wrong here. I really don't see superdelegates voting to restrict their own power. But, you know, we'll see. Now, again, these are just recommendations at this point, and they could have been better. I would have liked to see 100% of superdelegates abolished. I would have liked more when it comes to transparency. I think we need to see how the DNC is spending money. But at the same time, in complaining, I don't want to make it seem as though I'm not appreciative of the work that Bernie Sanders delegates did because they fought their asses off to get all of this uh, accomplished here. And again, at this point, it's just recommendations. It still will be voted on and has to be voted on before it's approved. But Bernie delegates, they went to bat for progressives like myself. So I want to actually show you a clip of DNC Unity Reform Commission member Numiki Konst just railing against corruption and the DNC's lack of transparency because it shows you the amount of work and passion they put in to fight for reform. Okay. This smells. This doesn't just smell to the public right now that the budget of the party was never put before. Forget about the Budgetary Committee for a second put before the people who have a fiduciary responsibility, whether it's Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, whether it's Donna Brazil when she was chair, when she was vice chair, or vice chair Ray Buckley, or Jim, Dr. Jim Zogby over here. That's over half the executive committee right there, had no idea where the money was going. We spent a billion dollars, lost the easiest presidential race you could possibly imagine with joint fundraising agreements. State parties weren't being funded. During the DNC chair's race, there were some state party chairs who said, I'm an acting executive director and I have $3,000 cash on hand. How are you supposed to rebuild the party if you have no idea where that money was spent? And you know what? I did go through FEC filings and it doesn't look good. It smells. We're talking about close to 700 to $800 million between the joint fundraising agreement and the DNC being spent on five consultants. Uh -oh. This is not a public outrage issue. The DNC chairs are upset, the officers are upset, and I don't know who's on the budget and finance committee. I did go to the meeting, it was 15 minutes long, and there was a pie chart that was, that was put on screen. But I would, as a Democratic Party member of this commission, we have a duty and people are watching us right now. The number one issue I get asked out in the public by DNC members is, what are you gonna do about the budget? It is absolutely ridiculous that we are going to keep a status quo system when it basically says we're going to continue to lose 1,200 seats. Let me describe what losing 1,200 seats looks like or the remaining seats we have. If you're in Arizona, Trump, yes, but let's break that down a little bit. If you're in Arizona and you have an ectopic pregnancy, you can't go to a Planned Parenthood clinic because it's gone because that state legislature is lost. So you have to drive over to New Mexico. And if you bleed to death on the way, you know whose fault that is? In my mind, that's a Democratic Party that wasn't funded, recruiting candidates, investing in, in, in local parties. And that is our fault because we have put that money to the top five consultants. And part of that has to go to the conflicts of interests. This is outrageous. It's unethical. It's bad governance. And frankly, it's fucking, excuse me, corruption. So if we do want to look at this budget and finance committee, I advise 
I'm sorry here. I advise that it be an elected budget and finance committee. We have very clear standards of oversight and that it is not just looking at past budgets, but putting forth a budget for debate with the people who have a fiduciary responsibility in that room so that they can find out, is this an open bid contract? Because the budget, you know, Congresswoman Fudge mentioned it's, it, it doesn't have to do with vendors. Well, the majority of the budget goes to vendors. So we have to have a conversation about who are those vendors? And that would happen through a budget and finance committee or another committee. But I think what's key is that that committee has oversight and it is elected. Because right now these committees are stacked with whoever the chair decides is on the committee. And I don't know what the chair's interests are because, you know, he's been chair for, for eight months. I don't know who he's in line with. But we don't have time. We have a freak in the White House and state legislatures controlled by Republicans and poor state party chairs like Jane Klebb having to go out there and fundraise on her own because the Democratic Party isn't able to allocate money. Well, all that money, we went to presidential races, but it was burned, lit on fire. And who suffers as a result of some consultants getting third, fourth, and fifth homes? The American people. People being rounded up by ice. Let's keep this in perspective right now. We have a duty here, and it is not just a duty to our committee men and the status quo. It's a duty to the American people, to the Democratic Party members, to the DNC chairs, to the DNC members, the executive committee members, and the people who have a fiduciary responsibility. So that was absolutely fantastic. I am so thrilled to have someone like Namiki Kantz representing our side who is not afraid to speak truth to power, literally. Now... One thing about all of these changes is that, you know, we, we took one step forward, a couple steps back, because recently the DCCC instituted some changes of their own for the 2018 elections. So according to Michael Tracy of TYT Investigates, the DCCC is mandating that campaigns must agree, quote, not to engage in tactics that do harm to our chances of winning a general election. The memo does not identify what tactics it is prohibiting. Candidates also must hold a unity event with their primary opponents following a primary, the memo says. What would constitute a unity event also is not made explicit. Now, Michael Tracy learned about this by obtaining a memo, an internal memo from the DCCC. So while the DNC may be voting to reform the party and make it more democratic, uh, democratic, the DCCC is making sure that they hurt progressive candidates. Because in saying that you can't do anything by creating this requirement that you, quote, cannot engage in tactics that do harm to our chances of winning the general, that basically means you can't critique your opponent. So if you have someone who's brazenly corrupt like Joe Manchin, his opponent, Paula Jean Swearingen, is not supposed to critique him? Well, how do you run a campaign then? So the whole point about running primaries is to make sure that the strongest opponent emerges. And if that opponent is really going to go on to defeat a Republican, that individual should be able to take criticism from his or her own side. So this is just ridiculous and preposterous. How do you expect people like <laughs> um, Paula Jean Swearingen, we'll use that example again, and Joe Manchin to come together for a unity reform or a unity event, excuse me, uh, after the campaigns are over? How do you expect people like Amy Valela to get together 
with a scumbag like Ruben Kiwin, who's accused of sexual misconduct and hold a unity event with him? Is she not allowed to criticize him? I mean, this is ridiculous. So look, if the DNC votes to approve these changes that were recommended to them by the DNC Unity Reform Commission, it's a step in the right direction. But make no mistake about it, the DNC has a long way to go before they earn back our trust. And we have to be skeptical because they've screwed us over so many times and they're still trying to make sure that they tip the scales against us. So we have to be cognizant of their desire to cling to power. Finally, the absolutely crazy race that is taking place in the state of Alabama between Doug Jones and Roy Moore is over. And surprisingly, Doug Jones won. Roy Moore lost. I am completely surprised. We have standards in this country, guys. We did not allow a pedophile to get elected to the United States Congress. This gives me a tiny bit of hope. <laughs> now, I say it gives me a tiny bit of hope because this was a very close race. When you look at the results here, Doug Jones got 50% of the vote and Roy Moore got 48% of the vote with 99% reporting in. Now, Doug Jones won by about 20,000 votes. So this was incredibly close. There were a lot of people that willingly voted for Roy Moore, who's a pedophile. And again, this election took place a day after Roy Moore's wife said publicly this. Fake news would tell you that we don't care for Jews. I tell you all this because I've seen it all, so I just want to set the record straight while they're here. One of our attorneys is a Jew. One of our attorneys is a Jew. What the hell did you just say? Wow. So, Roy Moore lost. <laughs> <laughs> Can we please relegate him to history books and keep him out of politics? I mean, I believe it's a democracy and, you know, anyone who wants to run should be able to run, but he's a pedophile. We have to have standards. We have to. If we let pedophiles win when, you know, Congress is already filled with serial sexual harassers and career criminals and corrupt idiots, then, I mean, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> but yeah, uh, color me surprised. I, I certainly did not think that the results were going to go this way. I was watching the results come in and I, you know, I saw it kind of tilting towards Roy Moore, and then I looked at the New York Times, and they constantly saw it leaning towards Doug Jones, which I didn't really buy it because I believe in 2016, they said Hillary Clinton had like an 80% chance of winning. Um, and then I slowly but surely saw that meter tick in Trump's direction. So I thought the same would happen here. But color me surprised. And look, um, I'm reporting this pretty early, so there is still a chance that it could go the other way, but for the most part, it's very unlikely that the results will change. So Roy Moore was defeated, and Doug Jones will be joining the Senate, which is actually good, because since Al Franken resigned, then we have another Democrat 
to vote against this tax bill. Because if Roy Moore got in, that's an extra Republican and one last Democrat that votes for this bill. It makes it almost a certainty. And I'm not saying that I love Democrats. You all know that I criticize them regularly. But we need to make sure that in the short term, we at least have votes to defeat what Republicans want to do. So this is this is good news. Again, Doug Jones is uh, no one to write home about. He's a very boring uh, <laughs> neoliberal who is not going to be very progressive. We're going to have to put a lot of pressure on him to do what he what we want him to do because he's in Alabama. And face it, if, if you're in Alabama and you got elected barely, you barely won to a candidate who's a pedophile, then you're probably only going to be in there for six years or until your term is up. So go crazy. Go super progressive. You know, co-sponsor Medicare for all. Go crazy. But, you know, we all know that's probably not going to happen. But look, and at this point in time, we can at least all breathe a little bit easier at night knowing that there's not this deranged lunatic who's a pedophile. Again, saying that it's just unbelievable that he almost won, that it's in Congress. So look, this is good news. Um, Roy Moore, go fuck yourself. You and your stupid little religious family can all go fuck themselves. Please go in a cave and leave the rest of us normal Americans alone because you are batshit fucking insane and we all hate you. Well, that's all I got for you guys. If you've made it this far on the episode, thank you so much for listening to me talk for that long. Um, hopefully, the lack of caffeine didn't make the show... Um, even more intolerable than it already probably is, just to hear someone bitch about politics, but <laughs> what I'm trying to say is thank you for watching. So, as usual, I want to send a huge shout-out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to survive and thrive. You all, your generosity is so touching. Thank you all so much. I'll see you next week for a jam-packed episode, the last episode of the year. So, uh, take care.